He's an American classic, such a profound writer, it's hard to believe Amor Tolls began his career as an investment banker on Wall Street, where he worked for over 20 years. Initially, he wrote in his spare time during nights and on weekends, and eventually he finished Rules of Civility, published in 2011. It became a bestseller that year, and the rest is history. He went on to write A Gentleman in Moscow, which spent 59 weeks on the New York Times bestseller list. Tolls has sold more than 6 million copies of his novels, translated into more than 30 languages. They've earned him tons of accolades, including landing him on Bill Gates and Barack Obama's annual book recommendation lists. And not to mention, his latest novel, The Lincoln Highway, was a Read with Jenna book club pick back in 2021. I had the chance to sit down with Tolls most recently at the Aspen Ideas Festival with an audience full of fans, where we talked about what led him to writing as a child and dug into the inspiration behind each of his novels. I'm Jenna Bush Hagar. Welcome to Read with Jenna. I am so happy to be here with somebody that I adore. So thank you all all for being here. Thank you. Um, Okay, so Amor, there's a part of your life story that is so wild, it reads like a bit of one of your novels. Take us back to when you were 10 years old and that message in a bottle. What Jenna's mentioning is when I was about 10 years old, my family would summer off the coast of Massachusetts on Martha's Vineyard Island, and I threw a note in a bottle into the ocean. And I I think the first sentence says, you know, to whoever finds this, I I hope it made it to China. That was (laughs) was my vision. So this is late in August. The summer ends. We go home, and my mother's going through the mail, and there's this little letter, like this big. And she says, Amor, the there's this letter for Amor, and uh, it's been typed out, Master Amor Tolls, and in the upper left-hand corner, it says New York Times. And it turns out that the person who ended up finding the bottle was a man named Harrison Salisbury. And Harrison, <laughs> yeah, Harrison Salisbury was really one of the great uh, giants of journalism in the history of the New York Times and had been the Hanoi correspondent for the New York Times during the Vietnam War and was an international correspondent around the world. And eventually he was the person who was charged with launching the op-ed page for the New York <laughs> Times as a senior editor. And so he had found the bottle. And he, said, and he says, you know, dear Mr. Tolls, I'm afraid that your bottle did not make it to China. <laughs> But made me. But so we ended up in a correspondence that lasted from the time I was 10 until I was 18. And when I was 18, the first time I went to New York City, I met him. So I got to meet him in person after this extended correspondence. And so the, the odd part of the story here is that my writing process is I don't tend to do research really until the end of the first draft of any work I'm doing. And so when I wrote A Gentleman in Moscow, I didn't do any research for the work. I wrote the first draft and then I carried the first draft to Moscow to begin revising the book in Moscow because I had never spent a night in the Metropole Hotel. (laughs) And I figured that would make sense. Just go live in the hotel and revise the work there. And so to get ready for that trip, I went and I started printing out first-hand accounts of life in the Metropole Hotel from the 1920s to the present. And there were many, because 
If you were famous or, and you went to Russia in the 1920s or 30s or 40s or 50s, you either ate at, danced at, slept at the Metropole Hotel. So I had firsthand accounts by John Steinbeck and E. e. Cummings and the playwright Lillian Hellman. And then I realized that all the journalists from the 20s through the Cold War all wrote about the Metropole Hotel because that's where they drank. And so <laughs> all the bureau chiefs did this. And so as I was getting ready to go, all of a sudden I'm checking one of these memoirs. And one of the things it says is, oh, uh, that was the night when Harrison arrived and da-da-da-da-da. And I was like, oh my God, I completely forgotten that Harrison Salisbury was also the Moscow bureau chief <sighs> for the New York Times. And so I thought, you know, he must have written about it. And sure enough, he wrote a memoir about his life in Moscow. So I got a hold of the copy. I took it to Russia. And in the hotel, I read through his memoir. And in the course of rewriting the book, I ended up weaving a number of things that he had seen firsthand into the narrative, such as the day that Stalin died. The day that Stalin died, nobody would release the news. They were worried there was going to be a coup. And suddenly tanks surrounded the city of Moscow, and all foreigners were told they couldn't leave their buildings. Everybody was under sort of temporary house arrest. And Salisbury gets sort of a signal that there's something can be seen from the Mexico attaché's apartment in the corner of the hotel. Hotel. And all the journalists flood in and all these limos start pulling up to uh, the building across the street. And among them is, in essence, a hearse. And they take out the coffin of Stalin. And what the, the senior people who were worried about the coup had decided is, we're going to announce his death like, as we unload the body with the entire Politburo there. Because we don't want any uh, backroom actions of somebody getting the secret police to take over the city, etc. And so he witnessed this. So I incorporated that into the novel. And then I was sort of letting the, the revision rest. And all of a sudden I thought to myself, you know, if I'm going to incorporate Salisbury's memories into the story, I should incorporate Salisbury. So that's in the book. It says the American journalist Harrison Salisbury goes into the room, witnesses this. And late in the novel, for those of you who read it, the count, the main character, needs a disguise. And so from the coat room in the hotel, he steals the trench coat and fedora of the American journalist Salisbury when he needs this disguise. And Mr. Salisbury had passed away by that time. But that was my way as sort of a, a young, someone who had been shown sort of respect by this older man and who had had this long standing conversation with me. It was my way of trying to pay him back a little bit. All from a message and a bottle. All from a message <laughs> and a bottle. It's true. Oh, thank you. So first Salisbury and then Peter Matheson. Yes. Who became a mentor to you in many ways. Talk about how he influenced you. I, I began writing fiction in first grade. It's when I realized oh, this is really what I want to do. And for other people who have fallen in love with an art as it, when you're young, you have this sort of dual life between 10 and 20 or whatever, which is that half of you through your adolescence is thinking, I can do this. You know, I, I think I could really be a writer. I think I have this talent. And you kind of compare yourself to your peers and then to actually other people you're reading and, and to your heroes. And you sort of keep measuring yourself and saying, yeah, I think I, I can do this. That's half. The <laughs> other half is I am out of my mind. I may be a total joke. There's no way I would know. And so you kind of live in this uncertainty as you continue to write and read. And as I say, this would be true of any young artist. And during that time, like the compliments that you get from your mother don't matter, <laughs> you know? 
Your mother matters a lot, but like that isn't what makes a difference. And so then I, I got to Yale and Peter Matheson, who I admired as a writer, came to visit for a semester. You had to apply to get in. I got into his seminar. And after a couple of weeks, he, at the end of the seminar, he said, hey, do you mind, could you stay after class for a minute? And so everybody left. And he said, listen, uh, Amor, I, um, I don't know anything about you. And I don't know why you're here. I don't know what you want. But based on the three stories that you've submitted, I think there's a possibility that you may be gifted at this. And so <laughs> I'm going to take your time here very seriously. And I hope that you are going to take your time with me just as seriously. And, you know, that's that was a major turning point in my life, because that was the first time that sort of an outsider, someone who I admired and who respected, sort of acknowledged the work that I was doing. And, you know, I, I, I tell other young artists, this is a very important moment in your life as a young artist, but you don't need it to happen every year. You know, you need it to happen like once a decade, because you can ride on that, you know, <laughs> five years later, you're still like, Peter Madison told me, you know, <laughs> to yourself, not to the public. You know? But anyway, so yes, yeah, so so Peter ended up being my mentor, both in my craft, but also this major figure in terms of, oh, giving me the, the additional confidence to, to think that I was not delusional. But the one half of you that said, I don't know if I can do it, might have won out a little, right? For a little bit, you went to Wall Street. Well, yeah. <laughs> a little bit, right? I, I did go where I worked in the investment business for 20 years. and I mean, and and what did Peter say when you told him that's what you were going to do? Yeah, he, what he said was, uh, well, I was working on Wall Street. I was 25 <laughs> living in New York and I was broke and I was a little claustrophobic. I was feeling lonely and claustrophobic. So I did go into the investment business and I stayed. A, a friend of mine and I, I helped a friend of mine build a firm and it was an enormously satisfying career. And But along the way, I, I got to writing fiction again on the weekends. But before I got back to writing fiction, Peter did take me aside and said that his experience was that everybody he'd ever known had gone to Wall Street had never come back to the arts, and that, that I should assume that my life as an artist was over. And that was kind of a, the dread that that would be true. It's kind of what ended up getting me to go back and start working on weekends and at night, and eventually I wrote a novel over seven years I didn't like, and then I wrote Rules of Civility, and then when that became a bestseller, I, I resigned. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. And you got to speak with him after Rules of Civility was published, right? He, he did. He was alive at the time that that book came out. And so we had lunch and that was a great relief. Yeah. Can you share any of that conversation or you like to keep that close? This is the only thing I'll tell you about it because it's kind of funny. Is when I submitted, I finished uh, Rules of Civility, the first draft, I sent it to him. And I said, you know, Peter, I just want you to know that I've been working on it. And, you know, and this is the first draft and I feel really good about it. I think it's probably the first book that I've written that is really worthy of submission. And, you know, and I'm, I'm interested in your feedback. And there's a 25-year-old woman who's the center of that book. She's the narrator and it's set in the 1930s. And his letter comes back and he says, you know, listen, first of all, Amor, I can't understand why you're continuing to write about the 1930s. You're always writing these stories about older America. And for some reason, you won't write about your own times. And he says, but to tell you the truth, I find that this is a terrible thing. <laughs> I find that, that, you know, spunky, opinionated, witty women are as boring in fiction <laughs> as they are in film, as they are in life. Wow, he probably wouldn't have liked me very much. So I was like, oh, man. So it's like, damn. So you kind of, you put, you put the letter in the, you know, way and you're like, oh, damn it. You know, so then the, the book ends up getting sold at auction. <laughs> I revised it, but it gets sold at auction and then it comes out and it becomes a bestseller. He sends me a note. The week it hits the bestseller list, he sends me a note 
And he says, uh, Amor, uh, this is what we call eating crow. <laughs> and he said, you know, my sister, who's one of the greatest readers I've ever known, says that the minute that your book ended, she was sad it was over and wanted to start again. And he's like, and that's as much as you could ask, you know. And so he was very sweet about sort of mm. recognizing. But, but I, I got to say the serious thing, again, for young artists, <laughs> well, middle-aged artists, old artists. <laughs> <laughs> whatever, whatever age you are, uh, is in a way, in retrospect, Peter not liking that manuscript was almost as valuable mm -hmm. as the confidence he showed in me at the age of 19, because it, it, it sort of meant that, right, that this, this book ended up working despite the fact that my hero, my mentor, my first real supporter, it wasn't for him. He didn't like it, you know, and that was kind of as a lesson that at a certain point as a young artist, you have to sort of say, you know what, I have to have the confidence in the work myself, even if my mentors or my heroes or, or my friends don't like the manuscript, you know, I, you have to have the confidence in your own work. And uh, so that was sort of a weird gift in its way. Coming up next, Amor Toll shares his process for writing and discusses how his novel, The Lincoln Highway, was inspired by his late father. Let's talk about the Lincoln Highway. I found it to be a little humorous that after reading Gentlemen in Moscow, which takes place over three decades in one spot, you took to the open roads in a 10-day period. Yeah. Did that feel like a relief? <laughs> yeah. What I'll tend to do is I'll develop idea, multiple ideas at all times. And so in my office... I have ideas for books which are written out on a three by five card. I have ideas for books which are written out over four pages in a notebook by hand. But in some cases, I have multiple notebooks where I've been thinking about a story for a long period of time and slowly building it out in greater and greater detail. And I have multiple stories that are kind of fit that profile. So when I finish a book, I kind of look to that <laughs> those stacks to say, what am I going to do next? And so it is not a coincidence that having written this book that spanned 30 years with an aristocrat, a sophisticated sensibility at its center that largely takes place in space, I'm immediately like, oh yeah, I'm going to do that story about the three 18-year-olds on a road trip for 10 days because I get to shift gears. Now, to some degree, it's sort of a liberation to kind of be able to, okay, I don't, I get to go talk about movement. I get to do it in a fast-paced fashion. Um, but Part of it is, is the real desire to shift like that is that it, when you go from a 30-year story with a sophisticated sensibility in a single location to this sort of 10-day road trip with, you know, three 18-year-old young men, what it requires you to do is retool all the elements of your craft because all the various elements of craft that you could think of, setting, plot, metaphors, similes, allusions, the tone, the point of view, the very vocabulary, all would be very different in order to serve this other story. So when I make a shift like that, the, what's really exciting about me, for me, is that I have to sort of set aside everything I've just learned through writing A Gentleman in Moscow and kind of way start from scratch. 
and start to ask myself, what is this going to sound like? What is the vocabulary now? What is the poetics now? What's the pacing? How are the settings described? What are the, what are the tone, the voice of the, of the people? And all that's going to be different. So it's a whole new effort of, re- of invention. And that's what's fun for me. And then I hope that's fun for the reader, too. It was so fun. But one of the things that that I loved is it was partly inspired by your own father because he lived during that period. And the Lincoln Highway itself is, you know, such an important part of it. So kind of go into all of that, please. Setting all three, your father, the highway, and the time period. (laughs) You don't have to do it in that order. Yep. So when I have an idea for a story, like in the case of the Lincoln Highway, usually it's a sentence. It captures my imagination. And uh, in the case of Lincoln Highway, for those of you who read it, you could probably guess this. I thought one day, oh, what if a kid on the way home from a juvenile prison being driven by the warden, ready to start his life anew, discovered as the warden drove away that two kids from the prison had hidden in the trunk of the warden's car. (laughs) You know, that's kind of what I started with. And when I have an idea like that, if it's interesting to me, usually it comes very quickly with some like attachments. So within a matter of minutes, I thought, oh yeah, this is good. This is going to be set in the 50s. <laughs> It'll start in the Midwest. The farm will be going into bankruptcy. The kids in the trunk will be from New York. The hero will want to go to West. They'll want to go to New York City. So they'll go to New York City and it'll be 10 days. <laughs> All that I know within a matter of, of minutes. <laughs> and then you go through this multi-year process of trying to imagine the whole thing in detail. Now, what Jenna was referencing earlier is that I did not ask myself why 1954. It felt like the right time to tell the story for a variety of reasons. Just, let's go with it. And you start to imagine it from there. And the more you imagine, the more sure you are that it's, it's where the story belongs. And, you know, once again, I didn't do any research for it, but I felt very comfortable telling the story for whatever reason. And only really, when I got to the very end, I was, you know, finishing the first draft, did it occur to me, this is kind of embarrassing in a way, is, is that this takes place in June of 1954, the 10 days, and the three main characters are all about 18 years old. And all of a sudden, as I was kind of wrapping up, I thought, oh, you know, I bet, you know, my dad, who had died just a few years before, I thought, you know, he must have been about 18 in 1954. Mm-hmm. And I went back and kind of did the math, and sure enough, he was exactly 18 in 1954. And I was like, as soon as I thought, I was like, of course, because what, what it occurred to me was that we are, all of us forever, are all enormously influenced by, let's call it the decade between when we're six and 16, let's say, because whatever is happening in the world between six and 16, culturally, politically, whether there's wars or depression, you know, the, what's happening in the musical scene, that will forever influence kind of the way we see the world and how we think of ourselves and, and what we tell our children, et cetera. That's a big influence on us, whether we're kids of the 60s or of the depression or the world of the war years. And what had occurred to me as I was sort of thinking of this is that the second decade that has in, almost as much influence on that decade for us is the one where our parents were that age. You know, because when our parents were that age being influenced by the world, that's what they bring to us and to how they parent us and how they describe the world and how they, uh, what they expect of us and the, the rules they give us and the morals they give us, et cetera. And so, as I said, as soon as I recognized, I thought, oh, right, this world I've just designed in 1954, all the, the various ethics of the characters and the battles they're having, and it's really an expression of, of the world that my father and mother had sort of raised me under the shadow of, if you will. You know what I mean? So I knew much more about it than 
than I would have thought even myself, in the same way that any of you would know a lot about the world as it was when your parents were teenagers. It's so interesting. And the Lincoln Highway, it connects our country, Yeah, uh, but it isn't really a highway anymore. Well, yeah, it's really... Talk about the lowercase h. Tell in the symbolism really throughout the book of yeah. how important that highway is. Yeah, and and, and um, you know, uh, part of the story too is that it, I, I did design the Lincoln Highway over a period of years, and then there were multiple notebooks in which I planned the whole story, and then there was a very detailed outline that I prepared before writing the book because that's kind of my process. <laughs> At no point in all of the books in which I've been outlining and designing the story is the word the Lincoln Highway in those, let's say, the first three notebooks. The book was called Unfinished Business. <laughs> and in the story where it said that the characters were going to leave the farm, and instead of taking a left to go to California, they would take a right to go to New York City, it said they took Route X. Mm. You know, because that's, I was like, fine. <laughs> As I'm making the notes and imagining the story, that suited me fine. And I got to the point where I was... I had now begun the first chapter and the outline was in much more concrete form. And I thought, I now need to know what that road is. Because by the time I get to the end of the second chapter, they're going to get on that road and that's going to have implications for what they see, where they might stop, what might occur that I haven't thought of yet in the narrative, even though I know what's going to happen in all 10 days. So I broke out a map of America <laughs> and I'm looking at the roads that go through Nebraska. And I like, I see, oh yeah, that's perfect. From the center of Nebraska, this road heading due east, you know, hooking up and going all the way to New York through Pennsylvania. And the map says Route 30 in, in Nebraska. And then in parentheses it says, formerly known as the Lincoln Highway. <laughs> and I was like, what, what is the Lincoln Highway? And some of you may know, most of you probably would not if, if you hadn't read my book, but the Lincoln Highway was the first highway that went all the way across the United States. It begins in Times Square and it ends in the Pacific Ocean in, in Lincoln Park in San Francisco. And it was built in the 19-teens by an American entrepreneur. At the time, the federal government had no interest in road systems. They did not spend any money on it. And in 1915 also, because still pretty early in the car, you have to picture that between, let's say, Pittsburgh and Denver, there were no hotels, there were no gas stations, there were no restaurants. So if you wanted to drive across the country that time, it, it could take you a month. You had to carry gas, water, medical equipment, extra parts for the car. So if you look at the pictures of people who crossed the United States in 1915, it looked like a polar expedition. You know, and with the goggles and the whole thing. And so I think that they, it was something like in, in 1915, 100 people drove across the United States. And that was it. Mm -hmm. So this guy, Carl Fisher, who had invented the first headlight that was used in all the cars in the United States. He became a very rich man. He retired in his 30s, worth about $100 million in our terms. And he became obsessed. He, bought, he then went on to invent the Indianapolis Motor Speedway. He launched the Indy 500 and as a spare time. He created Miami Beach, which is a barrier <laughs> island off the coast of Miami. And he was the first person to build a building there, a hotel. So all of Miami Beach was, was sort of founded by him. He's a very interesting, unusual guy. But at a certain point in the 19-teens, he decides Americans need a way to drive all the way across the country. And so he went and raised money from the public and it took him a couple of years, but he raised millions of dollars and then he built the first highway across the country and it was called the Lincoln Highway. And so that was the most famous road in America by far in the 1920s, 30s, and 40s. And within five years of him building the road, 
where I said that it was like you know, about 150 people drove across the United States per year before it, 20,000 Americans a year would drive across the wow. country once it existed. And so it really had this dramatic change in the way people both saw the country, but also felt free to move, you know, to take a job in another state. And we saw doing all these crazy things. And the, the main reason that most people don't know what it is, is because of the highway system that was built in the 1950s by Eisenhower. And once those were built, you know, that's, those are the roads that everybody drove on. So the Lincoln Highway still exists, but to our modern eyes, it looks like a rural road, you know, just going, cutting across the Midwest. Did you drive it? I drove it after I wrote the first draft. And then I, I rented a car and I got to the town that I kind of imagined the story beginning. And then I drove east on the Lincoln Highway. Yeah. Oh, interesting. Okay. So I got to go to Amor's office, which I'm sure by listening to him speak, you can tell he's a genius. Um, but to, you are. And to be in his office and see the notebooks filled with stories and his process was so fascinating. Will you talk a little bit about the postcards? I know you use real yeah. items. Yes. For those of you who have not read The Lincoln Highway, it, it, in the very beginning of the story, the hero comes home, his father's died, his mother's long gone. She abandoned the family and went west when they were kids. And they've not heard from her since. And the young hero says, I think we're going to go to Texas to his eight-year-old brother. The farm's in bankruptcy. We're going to get in my car. Dad left us a little bit of money that he hid away, and we're going to take the money, and we're going to head to Texas to start life anew. And the brother says, no, we have to go to California. And the hero, Emmett, says, you know, why do we have to go to California? And so the young Billy, the eight-year-old, says, because when Dad died and you were in prison, we went through his things you know, as a part of the process. And, and there was a box with, you know, the birth certificates and the, the deed and all that kind of stuff. And in it was this. And he puts out, and what it is, is a, a little envelope. And inside are eight postcards that were written by their mother to them when she left the family, when Emmett was 10 and Billy was one. And the eight postcards are from eight cities along the Lincoln Highway ending in San Francisco. And Emmett says, why would she be, how would we know that she was even in San Francisco? And uh, Billy says, because that's the last postcard. You know, she obviously sent us these to let us know where she would be so we could come and find her later. And so that's why we have to go. <laughs> and so again, you, you kind of, I know this is going to happen and I'm writing the whole story. And, and, and then it kind of gets to the point where after years of design, I'm writing the actual scene where Billy spreads the postcards out on the table. And so I thought to myself, you know, actually, I would like to see what that would look like. So I tracked down one of these companies that sell antique postcards across the United States. And I began search for postcards from the various cities on along the Lincoln Highway from 1954. And I ended up buying the eight postcards that she sent. And so I could kind of lay them out on my table, these eight postcards from the 50s, to sort of see what they would see in that moment or what Emmett would see as his brother sort of made this outrageous proposal. So I do like to kind of weave in things yeah. like that. Yeah. And that was such a pivotal moment in the book, too, because it inspired them. Yeah, well, it has a big impact. On, you know, another version for those of you who know the story, but... Again, this comes from very early. Billy is is a very particular kid. The eight year old. He's got he's got collections. He keeps everything in order. He kind of repeats himself occasionally. He takes things very literally. He's sort of that kind of a little kid. But he's very smart. He remembers what he's read because whatever he reads, he reads twenty times. <laughs> and what he doesn't read, he's not interested in. You know? So he's that kind of a kid. 
when he goes off with his brother to New York, he'll, he'll take one of the collections with him. And I was like, yeah, maybe they're going to separate when they're on the train briefly and, and, and a dangerous person is going to find Billy in a freight car. I kind of know all this. And I'm at this moment started deciding while Billy's in his room and his brother's looking in, he's like playing with his collections. And it's like, what is the collection that he's going to bring on the road? And I'm like, ah, I don't know. And you start to go through different ideas. Maybe this, maybe that. And now, so quick backup here. My great-grandmother lived until she was 100. And when I was 18, we celebrated her 100th birthday. And at her 100th birthday, we did not bring her presents. You know, as you can imagine, you know, 100-year-old does not want presents. But so she brought something for each of the great-grandchildren, mm. only the great-grandchildren. And what we all got was a U.S. silver dollar minted in 1882, the year that she was born, mm -hmm. just for the great-grandkids. So I have carried this with me throughout my life, and it sits on my desk. And so as I'm sitting there thinking, what is the collection that Billy is going to carry? I'm doing these different things in my head, you know, toy soldiers, baseball <laughs> cards, comic books, whatever. And suddenly I'm like, no, that's it. It's going to be the silver dollars. He's going to try to collect one silver dollar from every year, kind of, you know, between whatever, the Civil War and, and the 1950s, and that'll be his collection. And I'm like, what is he going to keep it in? And my mother had given me, as a kid, I loved old things. She'd given me an old tobacco box, a, a George Washington plug tobacco box, and that's in my office. And I thought, oh, that's great. He'll do it in the tobacco box. And I'm kind of thinking of the silver dollar being dropped in this tin box. And then I'm like, oh... Of course, what's going to happen is when they're on the freight train and Billy's left alone and the dangerous person arrives in the freight train, he's going to think maybe the kid has some food and Billy's going to move his backpack and you're going to hear the silver dollars shake in the tin box. And that's what the guy is going to try to get is going to try to steal the silver dollars from Billy. And that's what's going to really amp things up. And so, but this is kind of the way, again, you take sort of this idea, uh, a broader idea of what's going to happen, and then it's something very specific that's sitting on your desk ends up weaving its way into the narrative. I'm going to mail you something. Yes. And just see book. if it happens to get into his next that would be book. Great. The other thing I learned when I was visiting you is how all of your books, and I tell everybody this, how all of your books intersect. That's true. Please explain it because it's wildly fascinating. Uh, I do. I do kind of like to have my books sort of have little links. So you know, but many uh, rules of civility and the Lincoln Highway has a lot of overlap in that uh, Billy and Emmett they become friends with this character Wooly, who's a, a upper class New Yorker, and he is the nephew of a main character in Rules of Civility named Wallace Wilkett. And in Rules of Civility, Wallace Wilkett loans his family's large summer house in the Adirondacks to Katie and to Tinker, his friends, and they go there and they fall in love there in essence. And, and that building is very central and, and the, uh, it's the, the concluding moments really of, of the Lincoln Highway occur in that same house. And so there's all these sort of connections and threads that operate between the two books. But my favorite, which is sort of a little odd, is, is that, and this is really odd, is, is Gentleman Moscow spans 30 years takes place in Russia, obviously, and it ends on the 21st of June, 1954, and it kind of goes from 1922, June 1922, to June 21st, 1954. I wrote, when I was writing The Lincoln Highway, I was like, okay, 10 days. It's going to be a 10-day story. 54 feels good. 
the middle of the 50s, a perfect quiet time in the United States. The civil rights movement's about to begin. Vietnam War is coming. The equal rights movement's about to begin. All these things are about to happen, but if they haven't happened yet, that's great. So that works. And then I'm like, what month? I'm like, should be just before summer, because they're going to go to the summer house to try to get the money, this house in the Adirondacks, and they're going to want to get there before the July 4th weekend. And so maybe they'll go in like mid to late June. That's perfect. So we'll start like around June 10th or 11th or 12th, and then we'll end. So I'm writing the whole thing, and I get to be like, and I'm not kidding, like three quarters of the way into writing the Lincoln Highway. And all of a sudden, I'm like, wait a second. This book is going to end on the 21st of June, 1954, (laughs) which is the same day that a gentleman in Moscow ends, you know, June 21st, 1954. So then, for those of you who read A Gentleman in Moscow, what you may know or may recall is that that book culminates at midnight on the 21st of June, 1954, when all the uh, telephones in the Metropole Hotel ring simultaneously. That's the culminating moment, midnight, the 21st of June, 1954. So in the Lincoln Highway, the culminating moment when Billy and Emmett drive away from the Adirondacks, occurs at 5 p.m. on the 21st of June, 1954. But because of the time change, (laughs) that's right, these two moments, the two culminating moments in the two books in the final pages occur at the exact same moment in historical time. It's amazing. And I don't know what that means, but I love it. I think it's just crazy. I mean... It's crazy. I don't know. Again, you're either a genius or no, yeah, or, or yeah, or crazy. But yeah, <laughs> no, it's un- so now. Um, tell us what you're working on next. Yep. Will it start in 1954? <laughs> well, so, so I'm or end. The next thing for me is that in April, a collection of my short stories will come out, and six of those stories are set in New York, and most of them are kind of in around the year 2000. So that'll oh, be the wow. most, the closest to contemporary. Uh, times that I've written about in, in, you know, in terms of your reader ability to read it. <laughs> um, and then half of that book is actually something called Even Hollywood. And Even Hollywood, in Rules of Civility, those who, who remember that story, uh, Eve, Katie's best friend, who's very independent-minded, sort of hilarious kind of character, she, late in that book, is going home to Indiana to see her family, and then she never arrives. And the parents call Katie and said, you know, uh, Eve never... Uh, came to Indiana when she said she was coming, and then they investigate, and it turns out that at the last minute, she extended her ticket to Hollywood, and she's gone. They can't find her. And so at the very end, in the epilogue of Rules of Civility, Katie talks about seeing a picture of Eve in Hollywood leaving a nightclub with Olivia de Havilland (laughs) in the spring of 1939. And so when I finished Rules of I was really intrigued by what is Eve doing in Hollywood in 1938. So years ago, I wrote six short stories that will start with her on the train, and you sort of learn what happens to her in the first few months of being in Los Angeles in the 38. That existed for 15 years. And then about a year ago, I was like, you know what? I kept thinking about more. And I, I knew other things that would happen to her and other things that would be happening. And so I went back and I turned that into, that's like a 120-page story now. It's wow. really a novella. And with murder and blackmail, it's great, you know. So, so, so the short story collection is the six New York stories and this very long group of stories that follow Eve in Hollywood. And that'll come out in April. And then a year later, if all goes well, an, another novel will show up. Awesome. We can't wait. After the break, Amor Tolls answers audience questions about hidden messages in his novels and future writing plans. 
I want to open it up to questions. I hope you all have some questions to ask Amor. If you do raise your hand, don't be shy. This is sort of looking like my third grade class. Thank you for taking one for the team. Well, you took my question as it relates to the correlation of all the stories, which I find fascinating. So this is kind of my second backup question, which I just <laughs> came up with. But in, uh, when, in Sally's voice... Uh, page 104, you said, for what is kindness but the but the performance of an act that is both beneficial to another and unrequired? She goes on to say there's no kindness in making a bed and making a pie, et cetera, right? <laughs> and she said, nope. I said to myself while climbing into bed and switching off the light, there is no kindness in any of that. For kindness begins where necessity ends. Do you just come up with that? <laughs> oh, yeah. I mean, is that is that a belief that you have that you build into a character? I mean, that's yeah. pretty prolific. Yeah, yeah thank you. Good, really good question. The honest truth about that is, in any of my work, when you know a reader reaches out, like if you go to amortolls.com, you can send an email right to me, or if someone come, you know approaches me at an event like this, and they say this passage meant a lot to me, or, you know, this phrase or this paragraph, or, or you know, I, I, I sent it to my daughter, or I read it out loud to my wife, or whatever, you know, because I thought it was, it was it very, it struck me as very meaningful. 99% of the time, when that, when someone says that, including this example of yours, uh, it is something that I would never have said <laughs> in the course of my daily life. <laughs> it, it would not have occurred to me. I wouldn't say it to my kids. I wouldn't say it to a friend. You know, I wouldn't meditate it, on, you know, on, on my, in my own free time. What's happened is that I have created a person who I am not <laughs> with a different personality and a different background, Sally you know, who's sort of willful and she's, you know, a, a woman whose mother has died and her father has basically made her become the woman who takes care of the house. And she's sort of forced into this 1950s vision of being a housekeeper before she's even 18, you know, and, and, and being angry about it, but, you know, being kind of a Christian and, you know, at the same time, but also like a troublesome Christian. <laughs> but anyway, so I kind of, you create that personality with that background that I don't, I am not that person. I haven't had that background. I, am, I don't have that personality. And then I, put that person in a situation that I have never been. And as I'm writing about that person in that situation, occasionally something just comes out. You know, suddenly the person will say, you know, that, that whatever, uh, kindness, kindness. See, I don't even know. Kindness begins where necessity ends. Yeah. And, and usually when that happens, it goes, da, 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 you know, the paragraph is really fast. And then you get the culminating sentence. And usually I'm like, bam, period. <laughs> and then I'm like, well done, Sally. <laughs> wow. Sally, you nailed that. That's hilarious, you know? And so, you don't you know, say well done, Amor? No, because it's really them. I mean, it was a great <laughs> thing. It, it, I mean, you know, as long as you're talking about Sally, I love it because I remember this feeling, the same feeling what happened there. She gets called into school because Billy's in trouble. And what Billy's, and she's kind of keeping an eye on Billy while his father's died and his brother's in prison. And the headmaster's called in and said, we're doing, it's the, it's the Cold War, and we've been doing this drill where you get under your desk, you know, if there's, a, you know, an alarm, and, uh, and Billy won't get under the desk. And, and Billy explains that he has read uh, that, you know, heroes confront what, you know, they're afraid of. They have to face what you're afraid of. You don't, and that it seemed like being under a desk, you would not be able to confront, you know, the, the challenge that faced you. And so he didn't think it was a good thing to do. And so he's gotten in trouble. And so the headmaster explains this to Sally, and Sally, who's, you know, defends Billy, you know, from the first, 
she describes the headmaster who is balding and, you know, and, is, and he's been there since she was in school. And, and he's sort of an annoying guy, and, you know, and, and she's not impressed with him. And what she says to him is, listen, you should know. I'm not a scientist. I, don't, I, did, I, I did very badly in, in science. But it strikes me that being under a desk is going to be as protective <laughs> during a nuclear attack as the hair that you come over your bald spot protects you from the sun. <laughs> and again, I was like, that just came, you know, because Sally would say that. I would never say that. Hearing about your process was really interesting. And I could be totally off base here because it's been a good year or so since I've read Lincoln Highway. But I seem to remember that there was a lot of clock and watch imagery in it. Yeah. Am I right about that? that Okay. Um, Something tells me that you might have a process of coming up with thematic imagery and symbols in your work. And if so, could you talk about that, please? You know what? That you have have intended uh, motifs and there's unintended motifs. And my preference is actually the unintended ones. You know, occasionally you'll say like, okay, this, this is going to sync up with that. And, you know, and, and like, like in the case of, of Lincoln Highway, there's a character named Ulysses. And, and Billy explains to Ulysses, who rightfully assumes that he's been named after Ulysses S. Grant as a black American and, you know, celebrating the fact that Ulysses S. Grant led the fight against uh, the South. And so he imagines it, but Billy corrects him by saying, no, I think based on your ex- personal experience, because you went to the Second World War and your family left you and you can't find your family and blah, 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 you're actually based on the great Ulysses <laughs> from, from the Greek, you know, epic. And so as soon as that's in there, then all there's all kinds of imagery around the Odyssey and around, you know, those kinds of things, which I'm very conscious of as motif. The clocks thing, I did not notice. So when the book was over, I think it was one of my you know, first readers was like, man, a lot of watches and clocks. And I'm like, what? You know, what? <laughs> and then you kind of go back and you're like, oh yeah, they, you know, that's true. There's like, you know, there's all these, there's a, uh, Willie gives a watch to Billy mm-hmm. that had been given to him in Rules of Civility by his uncle. And, uh, and there's a grandfather clock that Willie winds and uh, that is usually left unwound. And, and there's sort of all these different things. And, and th- those, sometimes when I'm revising, I see that. Because you're reading the whole thing through as you know, in a period of, say, 72 hours. You read the book from beginning to end when you're revising. You'll do that a number of times, 10 times. And so then you'll often see things that you hadn't noticed before, that this keeps coming up. And, and then, then usually, you're, those are the ones they say, I'm really, I like, because you, you have to trust that your, your subconscious has done that wisely, you know, and that, and that, and that some poor graduate student is going to be mulling over that later, you know? <laughs> But, but it's, it's serious. It's like the, I'm a, I am an outliner. I'm a very detailed outliner. And, and it's worth talking about why I'm an outliner because it's a little counterintuitive. I outline very, every chapter, what happens in it, who, you know, who's in it, their backgrounds, the settings, the events. I do it all. It's all laid out before I begin with the first page. And then, of course, it evolves over time, but it's still, it's very carefully defined in advance. And the reason I do that is because when I'm actually writing a chapter, what I want to be driving the process as I string sentences together is my subconscious. Mm. I want the poetic, dreamlike, imagery-filled, inexplicable quality of the subconscious to be influencing the words I choose, the images I choose, the connections I make, um, you know, where you're, that's the artistic imagination really comes alive. And as I say, if, 
my instinct or my experience is that if I don't know what's going to happen in the chapter, mm. then the other part of the brain takes over because mm. it has to say, okay, what's going to happen? What does the room look like? Who's coming through the door? What is their personality like? What are they going to say? And all that stuff, that takes over. And you then you sort of write very punchy prose that just <laughs> says the thing, the thing, the thing, the thing, the thing, you know? And so... Uh, then that's, I'm interested in, I say, infusing the language with poetry at that point. So I do this odd thing, which is I outline it to maximize the poetry. And that's where I think that all those motif type things can come from. That as you're writing along, you're like, oh, and there's going to be a watch here. And you don't really ask yourself why, but you just go with it. And you dig deeper and deeper into the image. And then later on, you're like, oh, that's nice. Yeah, that's sort of in, in, that rhymes with this thing earlier in the book. There's a harmony there. It's really fascinating. Um, okay, we probably have time for just two more questions. Sure. Okay. So I just actually read Rules of Civility after Lincoln Highway. And at the end of the book, I just felt like this kind of sadness mm. because somehow Tinker just leaves. He's gone. He's into the mist. And I've never been able to let go of that. And I wonder if he's still somewhere in your consciousness. <laughs> and also, does that have anything to do with your time at Wall Street? You know, I, I that book is really kind of designed as, you know, one, a, a, a year in the life. Now, she's telling it <laughs> from decades later. So we have a glimpse of what her life is like later. And, and that infuses her observations about what happened in this year when she's 25. And there is something very obviously bittersweet about that ending. And I apologize if you haven't read the end of the book, you don't know that, but it's, it's fine. The book is still great, even if you know that. <laughs> but, but it is a bittersweet ending. But I, I, and I used to have some people, would, when that book came out, would come up and say, and by the way, it says that they're not together on the first page. And that's one of the funny things about the book. <laughs> yeah. Because she's looking back and she says, well, of course we weren't, you know, we never, we, you know, I hadn't seen him in whatever since that day, 20 years ago, whatever it is. And then people would get to the end and go, what? They're not together? <laughs> it's like, that's on the first page, you know? But that's great because it means they've gotten so wrapped up in it. Yeah. You know, they've forgotten it or they still, even though that's happened, they want it to somehow turn out differently. But like, and people would come up to me and say, how could you do that? <laughs> and I think, you know, what's interesting about it is the way I think about it is that you can all do your own little thought experiment on this. The question I kind of ask is, how many of the ushers and bridesmaids in your wedding are you like actively connected to? Mm. Like see them on an annual basis. Now, some I'm sure you are. They're your best friends and some are family. But I guarantee you there's one or two or three or four in there that were like friends in high school or college at that moment and you had to be an usher or bridesmaid, but then your lives went in different directions and, you know, you may not even know where they are <laughs> or you don't, you know, maybe the email's older, but you're not in touch with them. And that's totally life. You know, that's the way it goes. And so, so if I asked you all the people you kissed in the decade between you were 18 and 26, you know, and I hope it was a hundred, you know? <laughs> <laughs> whatever you know where are they you don't know you know are you kidding so well now we have instagrams well we i know yeah stop. now you know more than you should know that's true <laughs> that's true that's been the downfall of facebook <laughs> right, you get my point is it, is it that's and that's part of what that book is about it's about the intensity of that moment <laughs> and the reality that some things that come out of that moment become your life but other things feather away and even if they're wonderful like they're no longer a part of your life in the present you know, and that that's, that's obviously a part of what that book is about thematically. Let's take one more question. I saw your hand first. So have you given thought to, or is there a plan for 
writing your own short stories, like of your life. I find whether it's the Harrison story or whatever else, there's it's a lovely B could be curtailed into, you know, leadership, self-awareness, whatever. So is that is that something that's uh, on the horizon? You know, I do a little bit more of that in my short stories than I do in my long work. But even then, they're not really strictly autobiographical. For whatever reason, I just haven't been the, a writer who's interested in recreating for you the <laughs> suburbs of Boston in the 70s. <laughs> I don't know why. <laughs> so I kind of liked it. This place. You know, I, one of, I'm not, this isn't my next novel, but, but one of the next three or four, because I do all this long-term planning, is, is about 1977, you know, which is a big, you know, when I was, I guess, 13, you know, it's a very vivid sort of time of life. But that, for what it is set in Los Angeles, I don't know why, you know, why would it be set on the East Coast? I don't know, because so because I like to displace myself. I find that I'm I'm a, I'm a sharper observer when I'm I'm a displaced. But this came up earlier today, and so I'll share this. If you are a, a customer of Audible, uh, one of my short stories that will be in the collection is called the Di Domenico Fragment. And Don Katz, who's here, and the team at Audible approached me and said, "Listen, we understand that that story is too long to be in published in a journal, but we'd love to." turned it into an audio story. So several years ago, they did that. They got John Lithgow <laughs> to read the story, and it's available for most people for free, I think, on Audible. Um, and so, uh, but that story is about a family, a, a waspy family, where a painting gets each generation, over three generations, a valuable Renaissance painting, because like the, 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 fa- the great-great-grandfather can't decide which of the four sons should get it. And he wants to be fair, so he cuts it into four paintings and has them all framed, you know? And they each get one of the paintings. But then they keep doing it generation by generation. <laughs> and so by now, we're like in the present in New York City, and the, and the hero, who's like 70, 65 years old, has a you know, painting This is this big, you know? And anyway, so the, the story that I'll quickly tell is that when I was a kid, my grandfather was a very practical waspy guy in Boston, and he lived in a house where there was a full-length portrait of his great-grandmother facing a full-length portrait of... Uh, his great-grandfather, and that were done by a prominent portrait artist of Boston in the 19th century. And when he moved with my grandmother at a later age to a smaller house with lower ceilings, (laughs) he had the paintings cut in half so he could hang them in his dining room because they wouldn't have fit otherwise, (laughs) which I just always thought was like the greatest expression of like practical waspiness. (laughs) Anyway, so, so like, so that happens, like stuff like that, that then it gets translated into this other weird story of a different nature. Mm -hmm. Um, But to actually write about, you know, the suburbs in the seventies, that's unlikely. Thank you all. all. Thank you, Jenna. Thank you, Jenna. What a pleasure it was catching up with Amor again and hearing more about his incredible journey as an author. I hope you enjoyed that conversation as much as I did. Thank you so much for listening. If you like what you heard, please give Read With Jenna a five-star rating and review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. Make sure to tell your friends about us and new episodes drop every Thursday. The fun doesn't stop here. Want to join our Read With Jenna community of book lovers? Head to today.com slash readwithjenna to find our monthly book list and to sign up for our newsletter. You can also find us on Instagram at readwithjenna. This episode of Read With Jenna is produced by Asha Perker, Isabel Lang, and Abigail Russ. Our associate audio engineer is Juliana Masterilli. 
Bryson Barnes is our technical director. Missy Dunlap-Parsons is our executive producer. And Libby Leist is the executive vice president of Today and Lifestyle. <laughs>